Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Corey Horn. Many of the researchers here at the Frankel Center are leading researchers and historians around the world. They're experts in or students of history, especially that of a particular period, geographical region, or social phenomenon. Today's guest takes a slightly different approach than many of her colleagues, as she considers herself to be a philosopher, specifically a philosopher of difference in a particular time frame of the ancient world. The main project that I'm working on this year at the Frankel Center is my first book, which is titled Difference and Circumcision, which is a play on the title of Guy Deleuze's. Deleuze is a very famous French philosopher. His first book, which was a revision of his dissertation, was called Difference and Repetition. So mine is Difference and Circumcision. It builds on some of the ideas that he talks about in his book. Dr. M. Adriel Tong is an assistant professor of New Testament, early Christian scriptures, and Judaic studies at the Interdenominational Theological Center. What Tong is interested in is trying to understand how human beings come to associate particular differences with identity. One of the ways we tend to tell the difference between men and women is through facial hair. If we see a human being with facial hair, then we may assume that this person is male, whereas if we see a human without facial hair, we may assume this person is female. It's just simply not the case that this is a reliable way of telling the difference between men and women. There are some men who shave their faces and therefore don't have beards. And there are some women, between 7 to 8% of women, have a form of facial hair pattern called hirsutism, which gives them a full beard, just like a man. Furthering this example, it is estimated that between 40 and 50% of women use cosmetic depilation, or hair removal from the face. When applying this example to the idea of circumcision, considering everyone was clothed, the question is why is circumcision considered to be such an important distinguishing marker of difference between Jews and non-Jews? We know that circumcision was practiced not only by Jews, but also by Egyptians, as well as many other Canaanites and and other cultures, specifically in North Africa and the Middle East. So it couldn't have been the case that uh, circumcision was truly a differentiation marker between Jews and non-Jews because there were other civilizations and other cultures that practiced circumcision. In addition, it can't possibly have been the case because most people, as I mentioned at the beginning, do not walk around without their pants on. The fact is, walking around in 3rd century CE, There's no possible way to tell if someone was Jewish or Christian based on circumcision. If this is truly a dividing line, identifying Jews, it raises the question of why is it so important and what did it really mean? What I found was that it was not so much an actual way of telling the difference between Jews and Christians, but rather was a particularly potent discourse. And I don't want to use the word metaphor here, because often when people say metaphor, it makes it seem like this wasn't real. Real people got circumcised, or real people 
didn't get circumcised. The lack of doing something is just as much an action as an action itself. But it is also not really as real as people think it is. Both Christian and Jewish texts use this discourse, this idea that's more real than a metaphor and less real than a real form of distinguishing between different people. They use sort of this middle ground Tong calls discourse as a way of creating a difference that hadn't existed. In that sense, Jews and Christians collaborated together in order to create a difference between them. Tong's argument for this collaboration begins with the Mishnah and Tertullian. The Mishnah is basically the founding document of the rabbinic movement. So contemporary Jews would probably consider it to be quite authoritative alongside the Gemara. And in fact, the Gemara or the Babylonian Talmud incorporates the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is a foundational document for Judaism. Tertullian is a North African Christian theologian from the third century. And his work here against Marcion is foundational for the creation of the Western church, especially, but also Christianity in general. The major dispute within Christian history in the second and third century was with this man named Marcion, who was a shipping magnate at the time. Marcion was extremely wealthy, and he did not have a very high opinion of the Jewish people. He was very attracted to this new idea of Christianity and thought that the God of the New Testament was a different God, a wholly different God, than the God of the Old Testament. And so he argued that in Jesus' birth, there came about a new God that was actually the God of the New Testament, and thus he wanted to separate the New Testament from the scriptures of Israel and say that this new, better God came around and that this is actually the God of Christianity. Now, that was eventually completely rejected by the Christian church, in part because of people like Tertullian, who who strenuously argued that the God of the New Testament is the same God as the God attested to in the Hebrew scriptures. Most Christians didn't actually read the scriptures in Hebrew. They usually read it in a Greek translation called the Septuagint. While Marcion was doing his best to buy his way into proto-Orthodox Christianity, eventually the early Christians got together and decided to kick him out and give him his money back. This resulted in an intentional rejection of his idea that the God of the New Testament is a different God. It also affirmed Tertullian at the forefront of Christianity. Tertullian had to give an explanation of the scriptures of the Jewish people, the Israelite scriptures, or what Christians call the Old Testament, and the New Testament in a way that there was a consistent theology that begins in what he would call the Old Testament and continues into the New Testament. So his goal was to demonstrate that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And so he needed to create a consistent plan that God had in the Old Testament, which is realized in the New Testament. And his argument was that God from the very beginning had always chosen the Gentiles as the chosen people of God. 
He said that it was never the case that God had intentionally chosen the Jewish people, but rather that God separated out the Jewish people in order that he could choose the right ones in the New Testament. This is completely against what Paul argues in the New Testament. And why this is troublesome is because Paul is taken up by Gentile, non-Jewish theologians and thinkers and intellectuals and essentially made to say something different than what he wrote. Paul is actually arguing for a vision of Israel, of the Jewish people of Israel that is inclusive, of non-Jews who are allied to essentially the mission of the Jewish people. So in Paul's view, he thinks that the greater community of Israel can contain both Jews and non-Jews that are essentially allied with Jews. Now, the Mishnah rejects this as well. The Mishnah cuts out non-Jews entirely and says, nope. So while Tertullian says God always meant to choose the non-Jews, the Mishnah says, no, 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 no. God had always meant to choose the Jews and the non-Jews are out. And so what's interesting here is that the foundational text of rabbinic Judaism and one of the foundational texts of Christianity agree. They agree that Paul was wrong. They agree that this idea where Israel, where this uh, metaphysical understanding of what Israel is, they agree that it cannot include both Jews and non-Jews. They say what distinguishes between the people that God really chose is in Tertullian's case, circumcision of the heart, and then in the Mishnah, bodily or physical circumcision. What's interesting here is that they actually agree again that the crux is circumcision. But then what they do is use very clever word association and make circumcision not actually mean circumcision. In Mishnah Nedarim, they explain that circumcised, the category of the circumcised, means anyone who is born Jewish, whether or not they are physically circumcised, they count as circumcised. And Tertullian, he's going to argue circumcision was never really meant to be a physical thing, but was always meant to be something different. So even though they both pick circumcision as this discourse, this thing that's somewhere between a metaphor and a reality, They both end up using these very interesting, tricky arguments to include the people they want to include, regardless of whether or not they are actually physically circumcised. It's likely Mishnah Nedarim had two categories of the circumcised, people that they want to include in the category of circumcised who aren't physically circumcised. One of them is men who can't get circumcised because of medical reasons, and the other group is women. So if it was truly the case that circumcision physically was the dividing line, why do we need to include all these people who aren't physically circumcised? And what you end up seeing is that what is actually at stake for both of these texts, for Tertullian and for the Mishnah, is whatever they consider genealogy. In the Mishnah's case, they're thinking about the people who are born to Jewish parents. In Tertullian's case, he's thinking about the people who are genealogically related through the mechanisms of Christianity, meaning they're related to each other through this Christian form of genealogy. So that form of genealogy is not necessarily birth, although it is because in Christianity, baptism and birth are very connected to each other. So it's the sense that whatever genealogy means to either 
Tertullian or the Mishnah is what they're going to use as the way to determine who is or isn't either quote unquote circumcised or quote unquote circumcised of heart. The Hebrew Bible has a number of competing etiologies of circumcision. One of them is this idea that circumcision is a covenantal requirement, a tool that has to be performed in order for a ritual to succeed. You have to have the certain components included if you want to be covenanted to God. This is the most famous of the components listed in Genesis 17. There is a second form of circumcision ideology, a sort of identity-centric ideology of circumcision, where circumcision is meant as a label for describing them versus us. So, for example, the Philistines are called the uncircumcised, whereas the Israelites are called the circumcised. So that ideology is not the idea that, okay, this is an element within a ritual formula, but rather this is a label for them versus us. There's a third ideology of circumcision within the Hebrew Bible, which is called circumcision of the heart. But it can also be applied to other things. Tong calls this metaphorical circumcision. And it's where the circumcision is given the meaning of righteousness, correctness, or uprightness. The idea of circumcision of the heart is that it's used in various biblical passages to essentially mean that you are a moral person. And so to be circumcised of heart means a form of of moral composure. You do what God wants you to do, whatever. And then there are some places in the Hebrew Bible where there's actually a lot of mixing of metaphors. Tong's first chapter dives into more positions of Paul. Where this gets reinterpreted in Christianity is when Paul tries to create some kind of metaphysical Israel that allows for inclusion of both Jews and Jewish adjacent non-Jews, so the Jews and their Jewish allies can be included. Paul wants to figure out a way to include them, so he's going to say, well, we have the circumcised and those are the Jews, but we also have the circumcised part of the non-Jews and Jewish allies that we want to be part of this group. So we'll call them circumcised of heart. Now, people like Tertullian are going to call these people, the circumcised of heart who are not Jewish, they're going to call them Christians. So that's how that ends up being sort of taken out of the Pauline equation as a separate genealogy. As humans, we are able to create connections that value the difference between us. And that's what Paul's trying to do. But he doesn't succeed, which is why we now have two major world religions. What I want to do in my work is show people that these things were created. Because if we can show people that human beings actually had to sit down and negotiate exactly how we're going to split up from each other, it means that there's an opportunity to do it differently. And doing it differently is what Paul desired. He was passionate and concerned about what he saw happening around him. At the end of Romans, Tong believes that Paul was actually trying to talk about the synagogue authorities. Paul is very worried that the Gentiles are going to come along, appropriate movements, and displace the Jewish people which ultimately ended up happening. One of the dangers and why minority groups can sometimes be isolationist is because they're afraid that if you let in people from the majority group, they're going to take it over and they're going to use your movement in order to push their message. In his case, he's Jewish and he's talking about a Jewish movement. If you let too many Gentiles in, what are they going to do? And you look at history and you look at what they did. 
And you can see that actually, maybe the rabbis were right. They were right to say, unless you are part of us, you are not with us. Because look at what happens when you let them in. These concerns have pushed Tong into deeper research entitled Beyond Religious Difference. It's a question of how scholars reproduce the very thing they critique, how scholars can look at difference and reproduce it by focusing either on similarities or differences. One thing that Tong has noticed across ancient texts and scholarly work is the debate within rabbinics called parallelomania or parallelophobia. There are a number of articles that were written back and forth between a few scholars that is either arguing that we see too many parallels between rabbinic texts and either Greco-Roman or Christian texts or non-rabbinic texts, or we're too afraid of the parallels between rabbinic texts and non-rabbinic texts. What I want to say is that actually the only way to get around this is to do both. We have to show both the similarities and the differences. Rather than try to define these things as similar or different, Tong wants to push precisely the tension between the two and hold them consistently in that space. In the 3rd century, there was an Egyptian theologian named Origen. Origen was from Alexandria and migrated from Egypt to Jerusalem. His story comes from specific text that only exists as a 5th century Latin translation written by a man named Raphinus. Tong is comparing this with 5th century rabbinic text called Genesis Rabbah, showing that they are both similar and different. One of the ways they are similar is that they both take seriously the, the problem posed in scripture that circumcision is used to refer to multiple body parts. So both this rabbinic midrash and origin look at Moses saying that he is uncircumcised or he's foreskinned of lips. So they both ask, what is that supposed to mean? There's other examples in addition to circumcision of the heart that ask more questions. What would it be to circumcise the hands? What if you were circumcised of the feet? Both of these texts and the rabbis are asking, when it says circumcised of the heart, does that literally mean they cut stuff out? How does it work? These questions tell us that there's clearly an overall concern with the question of circumcision related to multiple body parts. They both end up theorizing modes of bodily perfection that happen to mirror each other. Origen says that in order to create the perfect body, you have to mold all your body parts into perfection and into godly behavior, essentially. Circumcision of the hands means you doesn't, you don't steal. Circumcision of the lips means you don't gossip. Circumcision of the feet means you don't go to idolatrous places. And so his vision of bodily perfection is similar to taking a piece of clay and then molding and shaping until you get the perfect body. The rabbis say what you need to do is remove the imperfect parts. And so what you end up getting is instead of a piece of clay, a block of marble that you sort of chip and polish until you end up with a perfect body. And what's so interesting is that even though those two images of bodily perfection are different, you can also see how they're very similar. You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, 
a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer is Scott Spector. You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. If you like the show, please leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening.